This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week weekend podcast. Well, this week, Carol, it's a special show. Highlights from our broadcast this week from Columbia Business School. We went uptown and what a day. What a great day. Smack in the middle of the Columbia University campus on College Walk. And we caught up with the school's dean, professors, and also some of its many prominent alumni. And among the most prominent, James Gorman. He is the chairman and CEO of Morgan Stanley. We caught him for a really interesting conversation after he had spent about an hour with a lunch and learn with students. If you're a Columbia Business School student, how cool is that to be able to sit down? It was cool for us to sit down with him as well. It was indeed. First up, though, we begin with a preview with Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Well, and it appears, Joel Weber, that this is not your first time on campus in the last couple of weeks. You were here uh, taking a class last week. Yeah, they let me uh, attend a class last week, Business Analytics 2, with Professor Daniel Guetta. Which Wait, means, did you take the prereq? Uh, which means I didn't have to take business <laughs> analytics one. They just let you skip ahead. So that was great, except then you show up in the class and it's like, what's going on here? Are you ready for linear regression? And that's what I got to, to sit through. Tell An it. hour and a half of linear regression. How'd that go? Honestly, it was amazing because of how well taught that class was. Professor Guetta made it all very approachable. The students were amazing. It was so, there was such an ingri- engaged group of intelligent people asking really insightful questions and he would repeatedly be like no we're coming back back to that question in two weeks just push pause on it right yeah so you end up just having this little sneak peek of of what an amazing school that columbia is one of the things i wanted to make sure we talked to you about was this notion that we're coming up on sort of the second version candidly under your watch of the business school rankings you have to be fair like really expanded this franchise in a big way, invested heavily in an ongoing series of, of stories. Why? Like, what, what do you see in business schools that's so relevant to the business audience? The thesis here is that the nexus that you get between the business schools and the alumni networks and the students that are coming through, that's why people come to business school. You get mm-hmm. a crash course in, in the, you know, the greatest business curriculum you can get, but then you also get the case study feeling that comes from real-world applications. So for us, we look at that, we look at the stories we do in many ways as as case studies. And and kind of making the world of business come to life via story is what we do in the Pages of Business Week, which is not that dissimilar from what's happening in a classroom setting either. So for us, this just feels like the water that we swim in and the air that we breathe in. And Columbia really embodies the spirit because of you know, we're, we're witnessing it here with, with Mr. Gorman today. Like, this is a powerful place to play. Well, I think about the surveys that you guys do, and you really kind of dice and slice what goes on in a business school community. But it is interesting because you pick, figure out the nuances that kind of make each MBA program distinct. One of them about Columbia is, you know, here you are in New York City. Yeah, so New York City is part of it. I think the big thing that we really leaned into with the way that we've done rankings and really why, you know, 30 years into this, we've doubled down on it and really found the, uh, our DNA with it, which is data, mm-hmm. you know, and leaning yeah. into how do we make this data set be extraordinary? And you get that from talking to alumni, from talking to current students and, and other business schools. And you, all of that stuff together, you get, there's, a, there's messages in that data, which frankly brings me back to that business analytics class two that I got <laughs> to say, <laughs> which is, look, you've got a data set. Yeah. And maybe that data set is ever expanding because that's what you're going to be looking at if you're in a, at a company, right? right? How do you make sense of it? And where are the little nuggets inside of that that as a business leader you can have takeaways that apply and benefit from at, at your company? So between sitting in on that class, 200 level, let's point that out again. <laughs> skip skip <laughs> yeah, the first one. Skip the first yeah. one. <laughs> uh, but also even being here today, I, like, what's the ethos uh, of Columbia? I mean, I would put this to Carol as well because you worked here and you have a, a great sense of this. Like, what is it about Columbia? New York City obviously is a, is a big piece of it, but what is it about this place? Well, I'll bring it back to their tagline. Have you seen that one yet? at the very center of business, yeah. right? Yeah. I, I think that really does embody it because here we are in New York. You can't imagine a better setting, setting for a business school when you have the, the real world applications that are right outside your door. And that's what you saw in Professor Guetta's class was case study, case study, case study, case study. It just is an unending experiment, yeah. right? And, and to be able to harness that with the resources that a Columbia has, whether in the classroom or with the alumni network, 
incredibly powerful place. What do you think? I well, haven't I was mean also, to ask you this. Well, I was thinking about when I worked here, and I, I got my undergraduate at Barnard across the street, but I worked at the business school as an undergrad, and I just think also the connection with Wall Street yep. and the role of money, and, and I'm not trying to, you know, money makes things happen. Yep. And whether you're an entrepreneur and you start something, and ultimately you need an investor, you know, that helps you get that started. I, I just think that connection made this school something really special. I, I think that's absolutely right, and that entrepreneurs uh, entrepreneurship spirit here, routinely it's it's among the, the things that uh, comes through in the yeah. surveys and the data that we see. Uh, and, and you see it, you know, in the classroom because that's a place that people can harness it and take it out and apply it to, to right. whatever your big idea is. Well, right. even the conversation we had with Federico Marchetti, I mean, yep. he was a banker who then came here and said, okay, I'm going to start a company. I'm not sure what it is, yep. but I'm going to learn about retail. I'm going to learn about marketing and learn right. about entrepreneurship and off I go. And then he right. scales it. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. and you know, I don't know if somebody could scale that business idea or that business model as effectively as you might have right. had you had a linear regression class right. that was like, you know, maybe you're not going to do it every day, but you're going to probably talking to somebody who can do it for you. And that's Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, joining us at Columbia. He had actually gone to a class the right. week before. He's a pretty confident guy. I think he was a little humbled by uh, his experience in that classroom. We want to talk about the global economy now. Amit Kandelwal is Columbia Business School Professor of International Development and Economics. Joining us now, Amit, you cover a lot in terms of what is so relevant to the world right now. You're sitting down with a group of students. What are the things you want to bring into the classroom that relates to the real world and what's happening? Uh, sure. So at Columbia, I teach uh, two kinds of courses. So I teach one core course that all incoming MBA students will, will take. Um, this is a core course in... Uh, managerial economics. So what we do in this class, which is not so much global related, but are general principles that we, um, that we try to instill, um, is for students to learn the basics of how to take data on the market environment and, and try to figure out what prices they might be charging, how to, how to manage their revenue and, and product lines. Um, we consider what are the implications of their business decisions when they are reacting in an environment with competitors and, and, and consumers who may be responding as well. So think about kind of your classic supply and demand mm -hmm. market conditions. Um, one of the things that we try to do at Columbia is to not only show when the market kind of can provide the allocation of resources that we think is efficient, but also to kind of think very carefully about what are the conditions under which the market may not be living up to what we think should be going on. So that would be your, your examples of um, uh, issues of fairness, um, are, should we have things like surge pricing, it can lead to an efficient outcome, but it may not be very fair for, for some consumers. Um, what happens in a market when a buyer and a seller arrive uh, into a marketplace where they've got differences in information? Um, and since so this is actually very relevant for very important markets like healthcare, yeah. um, where the provider of the service has different information than, than the buyer of the service. And, and we know that classic economics, so the market outcomes can actually can maybe not deliver um, the best outcomes in those situations. Uh, and we also consider things um, related to strategic decision making, uh, game theory, which is a very uh, common set of tools that are taught in an MBA program, but we also discuss things like auction auction designs, um, for instance. So Google and Facebook now mm -hmm. make the vast majority of their revenues off of designing auctions. Right. We will go through the very basics of, of how you would bid in an auction, like the one that Google sets up, how would you set up an auction, and so forth. So that's very much a kind of a, a set of things that we do in, the, in, in, in my core course. Right. Uh, and then you also look at the international sort of trade landscape as well. That's right? correct. So I also teach a, an elective course on doing business in emerging markets. And there the starting point, if you think about what is different about an emerging market relative to a, to, to a developed country like the U.S., is really one which the markets are not working as, as well as we think. So the capital markets might be broken down. The labor markets might be broken down. There's weak rule of law. And what I try to do is to walk through... Um, the core strategies that a company um, that's maybe based in the U.S. would need to consider as they enter these environments. Um, what are the parts and products and services that might be uh, very beneficial in these environments where the market is broken down? Um, as well as to think about what are the um, what is the role of a business in a society where we where corruption levels yeah. are very high um, and so forth, and what should be. Um, businesses considering. Well, I, I want to make yeah. sure we ask you about this this bit of research that mm -hmm. you did that caught a huge amount of attention, including on the Bloomberg, which was about the effects of the trade war. Right. Uh, and I think some 
at, if not unintended consequences, some surprising consequences. Tell us about that. Right. So outside of the classroom, I, I as you said, I'm, I'm an international trade economist. Um, I recently was involved in a project where we um, were looking at the impacts of the tariffs on, on the U.S. economy. Um, if you think about what a tariff should do, so imagine a country like the U.S. imposes a tariff, um, there's this kind of a sequence of events that happens. So one is the, the tariffs are tax on imports. Um, consumers are going to start to see potentially rising prices uh, on imported goods, so they should kind of switch towards domestic goods. Um, and so that means that there's going to be a transfer from U.S. consumers who are potentially paying higher prices to U.S. producers who are potentially benefiting from higher mm -hmm. prices. Uh, and then the government collects some tariff revenue. And so one of the goals of this exercise was to kind of calculate what is the overall effect and, and what are the transfers that, that are going on. One of the surprising things that we found in, 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 this, in this research was when you look at the, at the data um, and you kind of charted the time path of what happens to goods that are being targeted with tariffs as they come into the US, is like a really important number for an economist is to understand what happens to the prices of those goods. Um, and we have heard from, from the president, for instance, to say, who says that the, that the Chinese that the Chinese will be paying for the tariffs. And, and in principle, that is possible. And the way that could work is that if the US imposes a tariff, the Chinese exporter may lower right. her price down to so, such a point so that the post-tariff price actually doesn't change for the US consumer. And that's possible. And that would be a, consider, uh, a condition under which the, the Chinese is essentially eating the tariff. Um, and, but when we look at the data, we in fact, that's in fact not what's going on. Um, the split, of course, could be anywhere between 0% and 100%. And what we find is that the U.S. consumers or the U.S. economy is actually bearing the full incidence of, yeah. of the tariff. So that's Ahmed Kandelwal, of course, professor of global business at Columbia. Love getting his perspective because I think, you know, we constantly have conversations about U.S.-China, uh, different perspectives from investors, from politicians. But I think it's nice to go back to academia and see how they see it. Well, and I'm glad you said that because one of the things that I was thinking throughout our time at Columbia Business School was a business degree is only as good as its applicability mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I do think one of the things we heard throughout our time at Columbia, we heard it, dare I say, from Stanford, we heard it, dare I say, from Harvard as well, right. is these deans, these faculty, they're under a lot of pressure to essentially say, yeah, cool, that's some interesting theory. How does this apply in the real world? So, and I think what's interesting, you'll hear this later on in some of our conversations, this point of so many different disciplines that are crucial in having a successful business. So whether it's psychology, whether it's technology, marketing, you know, all of it kind of has to be in the room when you're putting together uh, a business plan or running a business. It's also one thing to read a book. It's another thing to <laughs> yes. have a conversation with someone. And another thing later on in the show, we're going to hear about from a very well-known yogurt maker, Siggy. Yes. He talks about the idea of some of the people he was exposed to. We hear from Federico Marchetti. He started Ukes. Mm -hmm. He got to spend some time back in the day with Mickey Drexler. You know, I mean, the guy who worked at The Gap who, who helped create J. Crew. Well, it's such an important aspect of this because one of the folks that we talked to, of course, is James Gorman. He's the uh, chairman and CEO of Morgan Stanley, a Columbia Business School alumnus. He spent time in a class before coming to talk with us uh, at our special broadcast. But that's what's neat about these business schools. You have access to folks that are out in the business world, out in the financial community, folks who have learned things at the school but have had to put it to work. And so that's just a great asset. I'm only human, a flesh and blood, so everything we do at home, work, or play has a digital element to it. Sidra Metz is uh, assistant professor of business at the management group within Columbia Business School focusing on management. She focuses, too, on all things digital. So nice to have you here on Bloomberg. Tell us a little bit about um, what's a typical class for you in terms of what you're teaching. It's interesting because uh, the class that I'm teaching is not that much related to everything digital that I study. Um, so I teach managerial negotiations, which is really trying to help students make the most of the interpersonal relationships that they have, obviously negotiating at work, negotiating with customers, their colleagues, their boss. Yeah. But they increasingly so are using data to do that, right? They do that. Um, so I think it's, it's part of the class. So it's trying to figure out how can I learn about my counterpart? How can I learn what they care about and use that in my negotiation? And I think to some extent, you could actually do that looking at what is it that they do online? Right. Stalking their Facebook profile, looking at their company website. 
So all these things could technically go into the, the decisions that you make. Well, and it's interesting that this is an offering, and in part, it's not surprising. I think we talked to the dean uh, you know, earlier mm -hmm. who was talking about how this isn't just sort of like six MBAs who sort of all look alike getting in a room and making a decision. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, a couple managers, a couple engineers. You've got to be not just, you know, sort of conversant, but almost fluent in the ability to, to talk to lots of different mm -hmm. types of folks from different backgrounds, et cetera. And I hope that's the experience that the MBAs actually get yeah. out of this class is that not the same strategy isn't always successful. It's not always the same situation that you can use the same strategy. It's not the same person yeah. that you would use the same strategy. And I think the MBA actually gives them a, a good overview of like diverse people to, to talk to. Psychology comes into this big. I think about mm -hmm. my sister who studied psychology for years and years and years. And I think everybody always thought that was kind of like a, a side form of study, <laughs> right? But it is being, you know, being incorporated into so mm -hmm. much of what we do. And that includes the business world. Mm -hmm. So I actually get that question a lot when people ask me, well, your degree is in psychology. Yeah. What are you doing in a business school? And I think my answer is usually, well, like there's people working in organizations. Yeah. Not sure if you've noticed, but there's it's groups. It's like there's group dynamics. It's interesting to see how do people select into organizations? What makes them happy at the job? What makes them productive? So there's a lot of psychologists trying to understand like the dynamics that are going on within organizations. So give us a sense of an assignment or an exercise that you might give in this class. So we do a lot of cases, and I think that's what students benefit the most from, is we throw them into a situation, we tell them just this is a role, take it on, assume that, that those are your own preferences, and now go and negotiate. And I think the biggest learning that they get is really the feedback from the other students. Right. So they're like, wait, like I lost so much money on the table, I actually felt pretty good about the outcome like after the negotiation, but now that I see what the case was actually about, maybe I see I could have pushed a lot harder. Yeah. So I think it's this feedback that they get from, from the students and also just seeing like how well did I actually perform in the negotiation. And so is there, it feels like in some of these cases, because it's not so clinical, it, there are some <laughs> emotional aspects <laughs> to it. Are you are you pushing students out of their comfort zones a little bit? So that's the that's the plan. Yeah. Like you could, I mean, you have this saying that experience alone is a great teacher, and I think to some extent it's true. So I always encourage them to go out there in the wild, negotiate. But the problem is that you, you don't get the feedback and you don't experiment. I would not recommend to any of my students to go into the next salary negotiation and try out something entirely different, something that is completely outside of their comfort zone. So that's what we do in class, and it's just kind of providing the safe space for people to experiment and to say like, well, this is what I usually do, but maybe there's another strategy that's much more successful. I have to ask you about one of the studies that you did, and it got mm -hmm. a lot of media attention. Um, I think you did this with a colleague, mm -hmm. and it basically found out that when it comes to finances, nice guys and mm -hmm. gals fall short. Mm -hmm. What exactly is going on? So the, what we showed is basically that people who have a certain personality trait, which we call agreeableness, so that's the idea. People are nice, trusting, caring, empathetic, that those guys have fewer savings, higher debt, and are more likely to default um, on loans and everything. Why is that? So I think one of the reasons is that they just care more about other people. And I think society has this image of, well, you can either care about money or you care about other people. So there seems this almost a false dichotomy saying, well, if you care about other people, you should not care about money because that makes you a lesser person. And I think agreeable people just place almost too much emphasis on the people side where they're like neglecting their finances. Just think of someone. So don't be agreeable basically is the lesson be agree here. I think it's a different <laughs> lesson. So that, that would be the sad news. Yeah. I think it's because like agreeable people are the people who keep society together. And I think it's the way that we think about money as a society is yeah. just the wrong way. Because yeah. technically, if you care for your loved ones and if you really want to make sure that they have a good life, to some extent, you should be caring about finances. Because right? if you default and if you go into debt, it's not just you who's suffering, but also your loved ones. And that's Sandra Mott. She is assistant professor of business. And we talk so much about technology and how it plays in. That clearly is on her mind. But what's really on her mind is the mind and how people are interacting with each other as human beings. I love it. So while we were at Columbia Business School this week, as you said, Carol, early in the show, right there on College Walk in the midst of it, it was like college game day <laughs> for business schools. We had a chance to sit down with James Gorman. He is the Morgan Stanley chairman and CEO back to the campus where he was 30 years ago. Right. I love to hear about his experience because he came from Australia, he was already a lawyer, but he talked about so many different things. We, of course, did speak about the IPO market, very timely interest rates, and as I said, his time at Columbia. Yeah, I was at Columbia in the mid-80s, and uh, it was you know, it was a great experience. So it was, it was fun. I just did a lunch and learn class with about 150 kids, and they are kids. Uh, they weren't born when I was at business school here. 
What do you want to know from them when you're talking with them? Because I feel like the world and so many different industries, your industry also going through lots of changes. What do you want to hear from them? Well, it's what kind of culture, what kind of company they're really looking to work at. I mean, what, what, what matters to this generation different from my generation? You know, I grew up uh, at a time when Solomon Brothers and Drexel and, you know, that was all the rage on Wall Street. It's a very sort of hyper intense environment. I mean, these uh, young folks, they're much more interested in social impact, um, in the values of the organization and, and just trying to share and exchange how we think about our role in society as, a, as a, obviously a global bank. Well, let's go all the way back to your arrival here uh, on campus. This was... Do we big, have to? That yeah. was so yeah. long ago. <laughs> but it was a big move for you. I mean, yeah. it, it was defining uh, yeah. in a lot of ways. What do you remember most about arriving, and then what did you take? Because you notably? came from Australia, and you were a lawyer already, right? Yeah. I, ca I came here to sort of change careers. What I remember most is the interest rate on my student loan Yeah, was, well, was 24%. It? Oh which I think is a world record, right? <laughs> and I thought I'd died and gone to heaven because America welcomed me to come here to learn, to grow, and, and I just, it was unbelievable. I arrived on a very hot August day, August the 2nd, 1985. It was that classic New York sweltering heat. And it just, it was all new. It was just, it was so exciting. And the campus, uh, this university, which is, you know, extraordinary, um, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't have been happier, honestly, to, to be given that chance. And that's why I think, you know, immigration, uh, welcoming foreigners, giving them an opportunity to contribute. And I'm still here. Right. You know, 30 plus years later. Because you had an experience living in International House, right. I believe. And mm -hmm. so many people are exposed to many different cultures. I mean, you were living in it in, in a lot of ways. How, how did that affect sort of your worldview? I used to play uh, chess every Sunday night with um, a Danish guy who listened to Frank Sinatra with candles on, uh, you know, <laughs> in, in the dark. And it was like, so, you know, and, and one of my closest friends, uh, I was a guy from Lyon in France and another guy from Morocco. Uh, so you, you, you learn to experience the cultures and the diversity that this world has. And one of the great things about a university like this is it brings people like that together who are all motivated. They've all, you know, they're obviously... Uh, they're talented, uh, and they want to move forward. So I, I, I thought it was a tremendous experience. Well, having said that, James, I do wonder what you think about kind of the pushback that we're getting um, from the current administration when it comes to folks coming in from other countries to study here, maybe start companies here, but it's not that happy an environment or, an, or a hospitable environment for them right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, this country has always been a country of immigrants, and uh, celebrating and welcoming those immigrants and seeing how they've contributed to this society here. I mean, it's, it's been one of the great elixirs of what's made America different is most countries people are trying to move out of to get a better life. This is one of the few countries in the world, and Australia was like that, where a lot of people are trying to get into. And I think welcoming those immigrants, providing opportunities for them, obviously having sensible border control, which I support. Mm -hmm. People shouldn't come here illegally, right? I didn't. You come through passport control. You earn your way into this country. You set the test. You, I became a citizen. I mean, you do it the right way. But having as many people as you can bringing talent into the U.S., I think has been one of the great hallmarks of the success of the last century. When you think about talent as well, you know, it used to be a much more prescribed path, it feels like, out of business school. You went to a big consulting company, you went to Wall Street, you know, you talked about hearing from the students, wanting to have a social impact. What do you draw in terms of student and talent from a business school like Columbia? And, and what's the case you make to them for working on Wall Street right now? Well, there, there, are, there are great careers on Wall Street. There always have been. I mean, things ebb and flow. I think the largest recruiter, I don't know for sure, but I think Amazon might be the largest or one of the largest at the business school now. So at different points, the sort of cadence and flow and focus changes as society is changing and as business opportunities are changing. Uh, listen, Wall Street is highly sophisticated, uh, very intellectually interesting, very dynamic because you're in the markets. As you guys know, this is what you do. Um, so for a lot of people, not everybody, uh, for a lot of people, it remains an extremely attractive uh, career option. So let's talk about the markets. Mm. You're in it. We obviously watch it day in and day out. There's so many big macro stories that are out there, uh, whether it's Brexit, whether it's U.S.-China trade. How do you see the market, the global market environment right now? Well, you know, it's, it's a conundrum. At, at one level, we've got record low unemployment. Uh, we do still have global growth. Uh, the U.S. economy, the most important economy in the world, is uh, performing strongly. China's still performing strongly. 
Um, Europe, Europe is obviously mixed, but it's been mixed for two decades now. Um, so at one level, the fundamentals are actually quite strong. Uh, at the other level, the sense of confidence, there isn't the confidence, and there's a sense of inevitability we're at the end of a cycle. You know, it, it doesn't have to be. You don't, I mean, statistically, there is a recession every seven years, right? Each year you begin with a 15% chance of recession, but it doesn't have to be. You know, in Australia, they haven't had a recession for 28 years in a row. Right. So right now... Why is now, there so much pressure, though, then, on the Federal Reserve to continue cutting rates? Does that make sense? Well, because the economy is slowing. Okay. The economy is slowing. And, you know, the job of the Fed is to sort of balance monetary policy with economic outlook and fix fiscal policy. And, you know, they should feather rates. Obviously, when the economy is getting hot, their job is to raise rates, slow it down, and, and the reverse. So, you know, I've supported the latest uh, Fed rate cut, and I suspect they'll do one or two more. But then it's time for a pause and really absorb this because the problem with cutting is it's one of the few tools you've got. So if you right. give it away too easily, right. what do you have if we have a real problem? I want to go back to something you said a minute ago, sort of squaring some of the different elements out there, and especially businesses that certainly seem more cautious with a consumer that isn't showing much signs of, of caution at all. How do you square those things as you talk to your customers and what do you see out there that, that could help explain that dichotomy as it were? Well, we, you know, we're, we're in a bit of an echo chamber. If you're a business leader, you go to business leadership meetings, we all talk to each other, we sort of, you know, we bounce off each other. So a little bit of it is, gee, we must be at the end of the cycle. The Fed's cutting rates, we must be about to have a recession. By the way, we've had an inverted yield curve, which yeah. has been highly predictive of, of a recession. So there's some hard evidence that things are more likely to slow down than accelerate at this point. I don't think there's any doubt about that. So as executives whose job is to think about capital investment over multi-years, you would be prudent in being cautious at this point. There's nothing wrong with that. Consumers aren't yet experiencing that. They've got very cheap debt. Housing is starting to recover. Their consum consumer credit, apart from student loans, sadly, uh, is in very strong shape. So the consumer balance sheet is still very strong, and that's why it's lagging where the corporate balance sheet and corporate attitude is. Are there implications, though, from having rates at such a low level for such a protracted time? I mean, I, it's, it's all about finding equilibrium between yeah. economic growth and, and the cost of money. So, I mean, there are only implications if it creates a bubble, right? That's a, a cheap money eventually will create a bubble. We're a long way from that now. You don't see any of that? No, I'm seeing no bubbles. And how do you manage your business, given all of those different inputs and, and outputs? That where do you hire? Where do you maybe stay steady? Uh, where do you invest across the, the empire of Morgan Stanley? Empire. <laughs> <laughs> Never thought about it that way. But, uh, yeah, we're just a simple business. Um, you know, firstly, we're very long the U.S. Our wealth management business is... I think 90 plus percent U.S. Um, and at least half our securities business here. So that's a good thing, right? This is an 18 trillion dollar economy, strongest economy in the world, most important economy in the world. I'm happy to be long the U.S. Uh, we're obviously, you know, we've been aggressively building our Asia business, which is now I think 14 percent or so of the company. Uh, with the trade talks, things have slowed clearly across uh, parts of Asia. Uh, so that's been played out. But but our job is to try and look past one, three, six-month hiccups or slowdowns. Our job, certainly my job, is to think out five-plus years. And, you know, traders are thinking every five minutes. I'm trying to think five years. And Can right you do now, that in this environment, though, because it does feel like we, we've been going back and forth on, let's say, you've got to. trade? You've got to. We've been around for 85 years. I yeah. mean, we're, we're managing uh, 2.6 trillion of people's money. They're not all selling into the market on one day and all buying on the next day. No, things things actually move in, in small increments. It's it's more things like the public markets and companies going public, but you know, or M&A transactions happening or not. But most of our core businesses are relatively immune to what's going on right now. You wouldn't see the impact on our wealth management business greatly at all. That's James Gorman, Columbia Business School alum, also the CEO and chairman of Morgan Stanley. And that's not all we talked to him about. We'll have more of that conversation, part two, coming up in the next hour. And for the full interview, download Bloomberg Business Week Extra wherever you get your podcasts. We caught up with Costis McGloris. He is the new dean of Columbia Business School. We chatted about the cost of higher education. We started by asking him about what he's learned since taking the top job. 
A few things to uh, to say uh, about that. I uh, I have been embraced with a lot of enthusiasm from my colleagues and. Uh, we're actually working on some very interesting initiatives here at the school, both to sort of improve and change education uh, and, uh, and also sort of talk to uh, business leaders that have been sort of flocking in to meet the new dean and see how they can be involved and help. Uh, so I think it has been uh, exciting first three months. Uh, that seems like a very long day. So. <laughs> well, Dean McLaris, I mean, talk to us about the MBA because there's so much of a conversation right now about the cost of education, right? And I'm curious, how do you see the MBA of the future? How do you kind of justify, you know, the education with the cost? Yeah. Uh, so a uh, few things. First of all, uh, we're constantly looking at the cost of the education and we're always trying to take cost out of the equation. Uh, we're also working on providing good financial aid uh, to our students uh, to uh, essentially uh, facilitate that investment uh, on their part. Uh, and we're really focusing on the value of the degree. Uh, so I think actually uh, because business is undergoing quite a bit of change right now, it's, it's a great opportunity for us to innovate in the value that we offer to our students. Mm. And in fact, I actually believe that uh, the, the MBA degree now is a fantastic investment, both in terms of time and return, uh, simply because uh, you, know, you need new skills to succeed in practice. Uh, and that's what we're striving to do here. So I actually think that uh, the degree is pretty robust. Uh, and, and I think, in fact, because of the change we're undergoing, it's actually more valuable now than it potentially was five, ten years ago. So as those business leaders, especially here in New York City, alum include James Gorman from Morgan Stanley, he's going to be with us later on. Yes. When he and, and his uh, friends and, and fellow alum are, are visiting with you, what are they asking you for that may be different than what they've been getting in the past in terms of what you're teaching or the types of students that you're uh, turning out? Yeah, so I think uh, uh, when you talk to business leaders, uh, you realize that they're encountering uh, two things. Uh, first of all, technology, data analytics is really changing the way their business is being transacted. Uh, mm -hmm. So they, they leave that for quite some time. They also understand that the nature of the MBA jobs, the types of jobs that our graduates are going to do, is itself changing uh, over time. So they want to see in what way are we going to best prepare students in order to really participate in that digital future. So they ask, what are we doing in the curriculum? What are we doing in experiential learning? Uh, how do we bring MBA students together with engineering students so that they learn how to collaborate because that's what they're going to do when they go uh, out to work. So these are the types of things we talk about. I'm also curious how much you talk about the U.S.-China trade spat and what that has done to students who want to come to the Columbia Business School to get a degree, but they're nervous about what does this mean? Can I stay in the country? Can I create a company? You know, so I'm just curious if you're seeing pushback or a decline in students from overseas that you know, want to apply. So for now, at Columbia, we haven't actually experienced that. Uh, no, no change at all? Almost, uh, almost no change. We continue to have about 40% international students, uh, about two-thirds of them, about 60% of them that just graduated that wanted to stay in the U.S., actually found jobs in the U.S. Uh, and of the 40% that left, I think a lot of them actually wanted to go back in different areas of the world. Having said that... Uh, you know, our service economy here in the U.S. depends on really high-skilled human capital. So it, this is a problem that we need to solve, not just for business education, uh, but for essentially training any type of high-skilled labor uh, that we would like to retain in the country. And hopefully we'll get to have uh, the dialogue and then uh, move the, uh, to a solution. Well, I'm curious, and that's where I wanted to go. Are you having a dialogue with folks in Washington about this issue? There are there is some dialogue that is going on. Yes, uh, so you know, but er, early steps. Uh, I mean, people understand that this is uh, an opportunity for the U.S. to actually do better, uh, and people understand the value of high-skilled uh, human capital, which is how we actually help build uh, companies, start companies, create new ideas, new technologies. So you know, they they recognize the value, and I think you know, hopefully, we'll 
keep talking about it and resolve it. And that's Costis McGloras, Columbia Business School's new dean. What's interesting is he's been at the school for a long time as a professor. He focuses on operations research, data analytics, and he focuses on the increasingly larger and larger role of technology in our world at large and, of course, in the business community. So fun conversation. Interesting to talk to him about, Mm -hmm. you know, teaching there for a while, but then you become the boss. It's a whole (laughs) different scenario. Lulu Wong, she is definitely a pioneer when it comes to Wall Street. She graduated from the Columbia Business School back in 83, uh, the executive program, but she's been doing financial money management since about 1972, so she's seen a lot of up and down cycles. And we want to start by talking with you about coming to Columbia in 1983. Columbia was different. New York City was different. What drew you here? I came to Columbia because um, I had already been working in Wall Street for a number of years. Um, I had developed a, a, a good um, uh, practice, but I, I knew that in the future was a, uh, a firm of my own, and I really wanted to have the best credentials. I had gone to Wellesley uh, College undergraduate, strong credential, but I thought I needed to have the credentials of a great university like Columbia. So I came really for that reason, but found that it was far more than that. Well, talk about that specifically, because you were working and doing the executive program, right, mm-hmm. which was like Fridays for a right. long time. Uh-huh. Tell us about what you got from being here. I found that by coming to Columbia that everything I've been doing and observing as an investor on Wall Street, it all began to come together in the context of theory and practice. And I believe that when you take practice from experience and then putting it into some sort of a structure and theory, it really works then. It all makes sense. And one of the things that you quickly identified was the ability both as an investor and, and a leader, a business leader, to make stronger connections between the U.S. and China. Uh, yes. That clearly has been a big part of what, of what you've been doing. That has never been more relevant than it yes. is today. Tell us what you see right now, especially headlines every day about Hong Kong. Maybe maybe we start there. What do you make of that situation? I think it's, it's a very fraught situation, and I hear from friends and colleagues uh, on both sides. And they're both equally grieved. Uh, And I think the way it it works out is that um, I don't think Beijing realized it was going to go this far. Uh, I think they certainly do not want to have a Tiananmen Square. It's a very different world. We live in social media. They cannot have that. So they have to find some face-saving way to begin to calm the uh, the crowds. Um, I think... Fortunately, the beef that the demonstrators have is really more with the Hong Kong government mm. than with Beijing. So I think if we can work through Carrie Lam, she has already withdrawn the extradition bill, and if she can begin to negotiate on the three other conditions that the, uh, the protesters have set up, there is a potential to work through some understanding. Lulu, is there a role for folks outside of Hong Kong and outside of China? Because there's certainly been some push among the protesters to involve the United States. What's your role on that or view on that? Oh, I do think there is a role. Um, uh, In my uh, not-day job, I'm also uh, uh, on the board of Asia Society, Mm -hmm. which is really the uh, foremost uh, nonpartisan group trying to bridge U.S. and Asia. And we had been very busy talking to both sides about the issues. I I think if we can find ways, the Chinese are very big on faith. They cannot be humiliated. And uh, if there's a way in which they can continue to stay with the uh, one country, two systems, um, begin to uh, exert some some control over Hong Kong, but not with the heavy-handedness we've seen, I think there will be a solution. Business leaders and certainly investors are talking increasingly of a decoupling b- between the United States and China. Mm-hmm. Given you've spent decades coupling yes, the U.S. Yes. and China in, in many ways, how much do you worry that, that that may become a reality? I think there are many people who are concerned that this is going to be uh, uh, one win, one lose. I still am a believer that it can be a win-win situation. Um, I think right now we have two leaders who are both under short-term pressure to try to resolve some of the problems before their economies crumble. I think the advantage that she has is that he also is playing the long game. And I think he believes that the long-term future of China is very uh, conditioned on China retaining economic, political, not necessarily military, but geopolitical power. The question is, does the economy crumble before he can achieve this? Uh, But he has many levers that are not 
present in America. Which he's been pulling, especially this he week, we've seen. He has been pulling levers. He's um, moving more liquidity into the system. Um, he's getting some of his um, companies, both multinational and Chinese, to begin to try to um, do more investing in the economy. He's trying to bring more capitals um, investment back into China. Lulu, I'm curious though what you are hearing is that will there ultimately are the expectations from U.S. folks that you're talking to, folks in China, that there will be some kind of trade deal that's done? Or is the fear that I think we keep hearing is that we're going to see China kind of go off with their plans and have its allies and the U.S. will go off on its plans Mm -hmm. and when it comes to trade and developing technology? What do you expect? I think it'd be very difficult for there to be two fortresses. The world is too connected. The supply chain, uh, the markets, we are interdependent. So Mm -hmm. I don't think we can truly exist separately. Um, I do think that some of the reforms that the U.S. is pressuring China to make are not actually bad for China. Some of the progressives in China have been militating for them all along, but they had been sort of outnumbered by the hawks. But I think with this current situation where she's under pressure internally for... um, having managed it uh, in an indelicate way, is going to provide some opportunity for the, the progressives to say, look, it makes sense that we open our markets. It makes sense that we liberalize. And so let's do some of this. We will make it appear that it is our own initiation. We're not being bullied into it. That's very important. The West has to not play the bully hand. Mm. I think that will be very difficult for she to overcome. But if there can be um, sensitive diplomatic accommodations on both sides, I think it could come out better for both countries. One of the biggest concerns for investors sort of broadening to the entire world, Lulu, is this notion of negative yields, a world where Mm -hmm. pensions and other huge institutional investors are just not making the money they need. Uh Do you see a short-term change in that? You're so involved in in so many of these big Mm -hmm. institutions as as customers and as an advisor. Right. Well, I think there's a lot of uh, liquidity around. There is money to be invested. And in a way, that's why many... um, bears on the U.S. market are puzzled and frustrated that they've been short and the market continues to just want to work its way up. So that money wants to find a place. And in this very troubled world, um, the U.S. and the U.S. dollar seems to be a relative, relative safe haven. That's Lulu Wong, founder and CEO of Tupelo Capital Management. She has been on Wall Street for a long time, been an investor for a long time. But I also thought, what a great time to be sitting with her because of her experience and understanding, really, both the United States and China as well as we sit in this trade war. She brought nuance mm-hmm. to an issue that I think far too often is painted in very broad brushstrokes. Yummy, 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 I got love in my tummy that you love can satisfy. Perfect song. And before we wrap up our day here at Columbia Business School, we have one more treat. The founder of Ziggy's, who when he came to the United States, I think first for an interview at the Columbia Business School and then to actually go to school here, he kind of missed something from home. Yeah, and that was yogurt and so now his yogurt it's available in tens of thousands Mm -hmm. of locations around the world Uh, the founder is Siggy Hilmerson he is here with us uh, at Columbia Business School your alma mater welcome thanks great to have you thanks for having me all right so what are your feelings sort of coming back here what do you remember most clearly about your time at Columbia Oh, uh, it's great to be back on campus. I love the campus. It's beautiful. And it's, uh, you know, I live in the West Village now, so it's like pretty close. Yeah. It's awesome to just jump on the subway and come up here. Um, what I miss, uh, well, what I remember most vividly about uh, Colombia was to come here and all the amazing people that would come through campus. Uh, I'm a big basketball buff. And uh, as a kid, used to wake up in the middle of the night to watch, you know, the Bulls play, Michael Jordan. And I remember very uh, vividly coming to campus one day and David Stern, who was the NBA right. commissioner, was giving a talk to the students. And I, when I was a kid, that whole world felt so distant. And then you come to Colombia and these people are just there giving you advice. And it was just, my mind was blown and I felt so lucky I got to be here. And I was just, I remember it very vividly. I was so grateful and it was just kind of amazing, you know? Well, and what's interesting is, I mean, obviously you started your own business. When you initially went to business school, I mean, you started at a consulting firm. Did you think at some point while you were studying, man, this is what I want to do is have my own company? 
No, I, I didn't have like a clear vision of what I wanted to do post business school. I, I'm sort of like a, a, a stubborn guy and I have a independent streak in me. So I knew I would probably do something by myself. I just wasn't quite sure what it was. And after business school, I actually uh, started working in management consulting. Right. But I think I was a very poor consultant, <laughs> you know. Uh, you know, I, I couldn't consult very well. So uh, I was sort of thinking about what to do with my life. And I had started making the yogurt, you know, the skier, which is sort of the classic Icelandic yogurt from home. I sort of started making it as a hobby. Uh, and sort of long story short, I, I had had a professor at business school who I was friendly with. And he sort of encouraged me to explore it and start it as a business. And that's sort of how it came about. And he backed you. Yeah. And so Michael, Michael Van Bima is his name. He basically became my business partner and first investor and, and, and was on the board uh, all the way until we sold the company last year. So there's a rich Columbia connection yeah. there. What was it that, though, you learned at, at, the, at Columbia Business School in terms of now running your own company and starting it? Because it's not always easy. In the beginning. Yeah, it's actually, it's a, it's a funny story. And it's another sort of one of those sort of serendipitous events is that my background was in econ. And I, I sort of opted out of some classes when I started at Columbia. And I needed to fill my schedule. And I had never done anything in supply chain. And Columbia has a great supply chain program and, and, and great professors there. So I just took a bunch of those classes, not having any idea that I would ever use it. But one of the most important things when you run a, a consumer product business, CPG company, is supply chain and logistics, right? Uh, a business in that industry can be broken if you don't have your supply chain correct. So one of the most important things that I learned from Columbia was actually supply chain. Yeah. But that was kind of almost by luck, you right. know, right. that that happened. So um, very thankful. It, it feels like you did when you created this company anticipate a place where we are now when, when it comes to food and ingredients and people's mm -hmm. willingness, candidly, to pay up for high quality and to really care about where their food is coming from. What did you see sort of looking around the corner that, that convinced you that this was the way to go? Oh, uh, that's, that's pretty easy to answer. I, I, when I came here, I not only missed skier, the Icelandic yogurt, I noticed that a lot of the yogurts here were very sweet. Yeah. And the, the most popular yogurt in America at the time had more sugar per ounce than a can of Coke. And the difference between Coke and yogurt was that, you know, people drink Coca-Cola and they kind of know it's not healthy, but they do it anyway, right? With yogurt, it had the halo of a health product. So people were totally indiscriminating of eating it, even if it contained more sugar than the Coke, right? So I thought this is like a contradiction here. Like people need to know about this and I need to do something to fix it. So when we started the company, I wanted to make the yogurt, but not make it so sweet yeah. that it was equivalent to candy or soda. And that was a challenge. People were sort of not super receptive at first, but then it really took off, uh, sort of 2012, 13. And why do you think it? Why do you think it took off? And and why do you think that sort of mega trend really set in? Did people just finally realize, oh, that's terrible for me? I shouldn't be eating so much sugar. Like, what <laughs> what was the catalytic moment? Well, I think I think it was just sort of generally people came uh, to realize this. I think people had been so focused on fat as yes. the enemy, uh, and not focused enough on sugar and all the suddenly sort of the drumbeat of uh, a lot of dietitians, doctors who work in diabetes, you know, personal trainers, all sorts of people who work in health, that sort of started trickling off to mainstream media and getting a lot of attention. And that really helped us uh, as well because we had been around for a while when that started happening and had been saying the same thing. So, so we were sort of lucky to catch that yeah. wave. I do feel like there's been an enlightenment when it comes to food, right? In terms of Absolutely. what's in it. Because I, I was talking with you before we got started. I mean, I loved the video online. I mean, there's not a lot of ingredients in it. And I yes. think more and more people, we talk about it, about our kids are turning around the containers and saying, okay, what's in something? So fast forward, you've got this company. People are like, yeah, I don't need all that sugar. I need just kind of healthy ingredients in something. There's more competition. So how do you continue to get the shelf space and set yourself apart? Well, we were, we were very lucky in that regard because when we started, nobody was focusing right. on that. Uh, and it, the, the weirdest thing I actually found was that uh, we didn't get a lot of competition. We, we heard sort of rumors that some of the big companies looked at our space and said, eh, people are not going to like that. You know, oh, this is a cool little brand, but people are not going to like it. It's not sweet enough. 
Uh, and then all of a sudden, we, we sort of are starting to have a meaningful share of the US grocery market, first 1%, then 2%, then close to 3%, and then sort of the competition came in. Yeah. So I think our luck in that regard was a little bit of that we managed to establish ourselves before the competition first came in. First mover advantage? Yes. So right. that it I think makes a difference. Exactly, so that kind of helped fight the fact that we don't have as much funds as some of the bigger players got and, 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 and the like. Why, you know, I just think as somebody who runs a company, just 20 seconds, um, you know, your advice to other entrepreneurs, and just quickly. Plan for success. Yeah. There's, there's nothing worse than having the demand and having the things out there that people want your product and not being able to supply them. So build the infrastructure. And that's Siggy Hilmarsson. He's the founder of Siggy's. I love his story about, you know, studying at school and the things he was interested in. He took a class on supply chain management. He's like, eh, I don't know if I'm into it. But it turned out he needed it in running and developing his company. Big Super time. important when you're uh, growing a big brand like that. Last hour, we caught up with James Gorman about the Fed, his view on interest rates. He admitted to getting it wrong when it came to how the 10-year is right. trading. Now we talk about how tech has been driving Wall Street and also about how folks are getting realistic with IPO valuations. But some of those that have come public this year, whether it's an Uber, whether it's a Lyft, you know, came out with a bang, but then it pulled back. So it's the market telling you, well, wait a minute, you weren't worth that much? Or, or what is it? Does it take some time with these companies that have been around for a while that are still not profitable, yeah. but have been around for a long time? How do you make sense of that? Uh, you know, the, uh, the market can be very stupid in the short run. Um, in, in the medium term, it occasionally gets things wrong. In the long term, you're the one who's stupid. <laughs> right, so uh, you know when and Facebook time will tell. Yeah, uh, totally. When Facebook went public, um, I went on TV. I can't remember if it was with you guys or not. Let's, Let's just, just say, it, just was. say it, yeah, was. it was. Yeah, it was. Obviously, <laughs> was. And you know, I said, uh, "This is a great, great new company that has been formed by incredibly innovative people who have created something that didn't exist before. That should be celebrated. The fact it traded at a value in the weeks and months after it went public below what people." wanted on the day of the issue okay that happens but look at it give it time give it a year and now it's it's something like six times the valuation you know in a relatively short period of time so we should all wish to have facebook's problem right so i i give this i give this a little bit of time i'm not i wouldn't be too too wound up about it are you seeing more issues hmm? that your team are you talking to more people who want to bring more companies to public how active is it right now uh, I do, are they are they not bringing them public because of this i think it's making people more realistic about valuations you know for some of these unicorns i think there's a little reality check has gone into the system and that's that's okay this is what the market does you know mm -hmm. back to my point the market in the long run gets it right and the short run is how you find opportunities when you think about this, uh, to maybe overstate a little bit, this negative yield world that, that we're living in, how does that change your view uh, of the market? How does it change the way you may deploy some assets and may deploy some of your teams around the world? Well, I, I, firstly, I'd be very surprised at where rates are. I'll just say that up front. I thought the 10-year at this point, I'd expect it by the end of this year, the 10-year would be around 3%. I, would, I was dead wrong. Okay, um, So... You know, a negative yield curve has been historically highly predictive of recession. Sure. But as Janet Yellen, former Chair Yellen, said, uh, it's not necessarily so. It doesn't necessarily lead to a recession. Uh, so how does it change our business? It, it doesn't. You know, we're, we run our business based upon what we see going on in the broader economy rather than where rates mm -hmm. are trading on any particular day. And I think in the last week you've seen the 10-year recover about 10, 15 basis points. So, you know, we'll see. You know, I'm curious, too, about the role of technology in finance. We see it increasingly so. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, the incorporation of it at Morgan Stanley and where you see it kind of all going, because it's certainly a big part of what they're being you know, taught at the Columbia Business School, and more and more so, whether it's algorithms, whether it's yeah. engineers coming in and coding. Where do you see it all playing out? It's interesting. I just came from our uh, monthly risk committee meeting to our meeting this morning, and uh, we had a whole section on electronic trading and... Um, what we're doing in that space and how it's bleeding from equities into the fixed income space. Um, you know, the technology has been driving Wall Street, dirty little secret, for a very long time. You know, we set up our first electronic trading businesses in the mid-90s. And it's like everybody suddenly discovered technology because of fintech. Um, there's a lot of innovation going on in the fintech sector, for sure. And right. we are partnering with a lot of those companies. But we are, you know, we spend upwards of $4 billion on technology. We have 
centers of competence in machine learning, robotics, artificial intelligence, cloud computing, big data management. Uh, obviously, our cyberspace is huge. So we, we have the resources and I think the intellectual horsepower to be at the forefront of a lot of the new technology development, but not all of it we want to do in-house. Right. So we're actively looking to partner with large and small companies, whether it's in software development, uh, in data management in particular, and you know embrace it. So it's it's very much a part of everything we do. Digital currencies as well? Uh, we, yeah, we're helping uh, clients uh, hedge and manage their exposures to digital currencies. We haven't been, um, you know, we haven't set up a digital business unit uh, focused on, you know, the various forms of cryptos per se. Because? Much more interested in the blockchain technology. Okay. I don't know, it, it's just another form of stored value to me. And I'm, I'm you know, people, I've, maybe I'm dead wrong about this. I've been quite conservative on this for a long time. Um, I see much more value around the blockchain technology supporting the currency than the currency itself. You, you mentioned sort of various partnerships, especially on the fintech side. From a competitive standpoint, where do you see the most competition across your lines of business at this point? Ooh, um, well, in, in wealth management, clearly, yeah. you know, the online space, but, but that's not new. I mean, Schwab and E-Trade and Meritrade have been around an awfully long time. They've been doing online you know, digital business, it was just called something different, which was direct brokerage, right? right? It had a different name. Uh, so that's always been competitive. I think um, uh, in the asset management space, obviously the challenge of a lot of the package ETF indexing versus the, uh, you know, traditional long only active managed. But a lot of our businesses are very complex, require global capability, you know, hedging, uh, you know, a currency exposure in Japan, uh, being long certain rate securities in you know Australia. I mean, we're 24 hours. It's a lot of it is. Um, it's it's not that it's not challenged competitively, but most of our challenge comes from our traditional competitors, the big banks. James, I'm always curious. You know, we spend our time so much talking about Fed policy, yield curves, U.S.-China trade policy. What is it that you folks at Morgan are spending so much time having conversations about? What is it that we're not talking about that really deserves a little bit more attention? Leadership, culture, um, creating an organization where diverse employees don't feel included, but feel not just included, but feel they belong. That's something I've felt very strongly about. The whole diversity inclusion discussion implies somebody invited you into the room. No, I want you to belong. It's your room. So we talk about a lot of the qualities that get at uh, do employees respect your institution, want to be part of your institution, want to make their careers and lives there. The, the, the macro stuff, okay, rates were 2.5%, now they're 1.5%. Is Morgan Stanley fundamentally changing its strategy because of that? Of course not. But if we can't attract really talented, committed people who do things the right way, have the right values, then, then we're going nowhere. Mm. So I'm very, once your strategy is in place, and I think we have a really sound strategy, it's all about reaffirming the cultural values and putting the leadership in place for the next 10 and 15 years who can drive those values. Are we making inroads though, I want to ask about diversity? Because I feel like we've been talking about diversity, parity, women, you know, issues on Wall Street for a long, long time. And we're still struggling and, to and, get them. And, and we will be talking about it for a long, long time. I'd, I'd share one fact with you. Uh, this year, and this wasn't by design, it was an outcome. Uh, this year, for the first time ever, more than 50% of our intern class, which is 1,000 interns globally, were women. First time ever. Uh, our right. head of China is a woman, head of Europe, Middle East, Africa is a woman, co-head of investment banking is a woman, the head of our bank is a woman. I mean, we have senior leadership women in multiple roles, but are they representative of the role of women in society? No, they're not. Right. So we've, 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 we've made steps, uh, but it starts with the pipeline at the beginning and then finding ways in which you can keep those folks through all the transitions we make in life, have uh, terrific careers at Morgan Stanley. Are those discussions and those efforts becoming easier or harder given the political climate we're in? We live in a pretty, I think it's fair to say, divisive time, uh, a hyper-political time in a lot of ways. How do you cut through all that to make these sorts of decisions? I think from a diversity perspective, no. I think from what is the role of the corporation society, yes. I think we're being called as CEOs into the public debate much more. We're, we're our our employees want us to express opinions on a wide range of issues. And it's very difficult because you've got to, you, you, you know, we, we all have personal, I mean, I'm a, I'm a voter, right? I'm a citizen. 
I have opinions on all these issues, and it can't be just what James Gorman thinks. I'm not the company. It's what, what is for the greater good of the whole organization. And I think what a lot of companies are now struggling with is what is our role in society? And this is why the statement came out recently from the CEOs at the Roundtable, right. uh, which was basically to embrace the broader stakeholders that we have. You can listen, you can be a bank and run it only for shareholder value. But if society turns against you and nationalizes your bank, that didn't work out so well. Right. <laughs> right. So I've always believed you have to operate in the ecosystem with respect for everybody in that ecosystem. But what's interesting is and we had a very smart conversation with um, like we're having right now, but with another individual in the financial community, but talking about, you know, not everybody has the same access to education, you know, and I do wonder, you know, what that has done in terms of creating the gaps within our society. So how do we deal with that? Well, there, I mean, there are gaps in, in, in every society and not everybody starts off with the same access. I mean, it's, you know, you're like, I was lucky I was born in Melbourne to the family I was born with and given the education I was given, that's why I'm here. That's James Gorman, CEO and Chairman of Morgan Stanley, a Columbia Business School alumnus. Great conversation. Uh, of course, we talked the obvious about the market environment, the business outlook. We talked about IPOs, but I really did also love the other areas we went, Jason, when it came to either diversity uh, and other issues, inequalities that we're facing in our society right now. Politics, too. Very thoughtful guy, obviously a big job, and he mm -hmm. does echo back a lot to his time yeah. at Columbia. For the full interview, download Bloomberg Business Week Extra wherever you get your podcasts. And that wraps up Bloomberg Business Week's weekend podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. Can't catch us live? Well, check out our daily podcast for the ride home at iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. And you can get this week's edition of the magazine on newsstands now. We'll be back next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.